Blog Talk Radio. Hi, I'm author and publisher Tracy L. Slatten. It's my belief that the most interesting, creative, and original voices today are heard outside of the big corporations, studios, and galleries. Individuals of courage, inspiration, and vision are seizing the opportunities to create and promote their art themselves. I'm here to support them and to bring their stories to you. On this show, I'll interview independent artists of all kinds, unusual thinkers, and even some healers about their process. How do they do it? How do they start with an idea and bring it to life in the world? This show intends to illuminate the journey. Feel free to call in to 516-453-6052 with questions or live chat with me at blogtalkradio.com slash independent artist thinkers. Great to have you with us. Hi, this is Tracy L. Slatten, hosting Independent Artists and Thinkers. I am so happy to welcome you to the show. We have a wonderful show lined up for you today. I am grateful and humbled that so many people are listening to the show, both live and in the archives and in the iTunes podcast channel. So thanks very much for tuning in, and I hope you take something away that really nourishes and sustains you. I created this show to support those brave souls who are operating outside the structures of the big established corporations. As the intro to the show says, I intend to illuminate the unusual journey and to bring it to you. I'm interested in alternatives to conventional thinking and conventional answers. I'm interested in creativity, fresh ideas, unusual perspectives, and originality. And this show aims to bring you models of people who embody those qualities. Please do call in with questions or comments to 516 516- 36052. You can also live chat me at blogtalkradio.com slash independentartistthinkers. Email me in between shows if you'd like to suggest a guest or if you'd like to have me ask questions of a particular guest. You can reach me at tracy at tracylslatin.com and that's T-R-A-C-I at tracylslatin.com. In the coming weeks, some great guests are coming on. On October 1, artist and atelier master Virgil Elliott will talk about art and the study of art. Very cool. He's got some interesting ideas. On October 8, author and psychotherapist Dr. Linda Bachman will talk about between-life soul regression, and she'll talk about her findings about the lives of our souls in the spirit world. So tune in and keep checking the website, independentartistinkers.com and the Blog Talk radio page to find out who will be on the show. I am delighted today to have Sufi dancer, entrepreneur, and founder of Neural Beings Coaching, Anahita Mokhadam, to talk about mindfulness and self-actualization. Anahita Mokhadam is a coach and speaker whose rigorous and experiential methodology is rooted in the Eastern contemplative traditions and continuously refined under the mentorship of leading scientists, academics, and scholars in the fields of Eastern psychology and neuroscience. Inspired by ancient insights into the workings of the human experience, Anahita is committed to a path of self-inquiry, examining the nature of mind and reality by applying analytic insight and direct embodied experience. 
Anahita's coaching and leadership development style addresses issues on a causal level. It disrupts habitual patterns of behavior by challenging perception and self-reinforcing systems of belief. Working closely with clients, Anahita helps dismantle obstacles through a deconstructionist approach accompanied by mental training that fosters insight. She understands that pro-social emotions and wholesome mental states such as love, empathy, insight, collaboration, and creativity will allow for the continued flourishing of life. Anahita was born in Tehran raised in Hamburg, and attended university in London. She has worked in media and journalism for European news agencies and produced macroeconomic country reports for Forbes, The Washington Post, and The Times. She has lived and worked in Croatia, Botswana, Indonesia, and the Arab Emirates, interviewing senior political and business leaders while gaining insight into the unique mindsets of individuals. In pursuit of self-actualization, Anahita moved to New York City in 2009. She worked closely with social innovators and entrepreneurs as a project manager until her path as a coach became undeniable. Neural Beings was launched in 2013 as a platform for Anahita's coaching practice, as well as for curating the work of visionary leaders from all fields of life. And I'm just going to say that on her website, which is neuralbeings.com, she has a page that lists resources, and there's a whole column of inspirations, which I think is wonderful. And the name Neural Beings was inspired by George Lakoff, a cognitive linguist, and the notion of the embodied mind. Neural Beings is a statement suggesting that we embrace the entire body-mind system as one interdependent unit. Anahita's clients include executives, managers, and teams at Sotheby's, the United Nations, the Lowell Hotel, Bold New York, Media Head, international advertising agencies, as well as emerging talent in technology, design, and social innovation. Anahita has facilitated workshops on the neuroscience of mindfulness at the 2014 Feast Conference and led a master class at the 2015 Social Media Week New York, which, which was featured on Huffington Post Live. Her, worksho- her workshop has also been featured on entrepreneur.com. She coaches and facilitates workshops in English, German, and Farsi. Anahita holds a BA in marketing and advertising from the London College of Communication and an MA in social anthropology from the School of Oriental and African Studies, London. She is enrolled in a two-year certification program in contemplative psychotherapy at the Nalanda Institute for Contemplative Science in New York. She has volunteered in New York and Kathmandu with the 108 Lives Project, taught entrepreneurship and mindfulness classes to formerly incarcerated men and women in the South Bronx at the Osborne Association, and is an ambassador to the Tibet Fund, the primary funding organization for Tibetan refugees in Nepal, India, and Bhutan. Anahita is also a trained modern and Sufi dancer, performing on select occasions in New York City and around the world. This is a pretty amazing resume, and you can see more about <laughs> Anahita at neurobeings.com. Anahita, welcome. Hello, and well, thank you so much. My goodness, what a long bio. <laughs> you have done thank so you. much, and I know you're young because I've seen your picture, so it's really impressive that you've accomplished so much. Oh, thank you. I was just listening to it thinking, my goodness. <laughs> A uh, very long bio, indeed. Thank you for for taking the time to read it. Well, I think listeners are are interested, and I'm I'm really fascinated by how you've played on the world stage. And I'm going to ask you to tell us how you got started. How did you begin your journey? What has it taken for you to arrive at the place where you are currently? What training did you have? When did you know you were going to be involved in mindfulness and coaching and Sufi dancing and um, volunteering? 
were these ideas a major presence in your home when you were growing up? What did you think mm-hmm. they would be? How did you come to live in New York? So tell us everything. Tell wow. about your childhood up till now. Okay, so many different layers. Wow. So let me find that point of singularity that you're looking for, that like big bang. Um, actually, to be honest, I can't find it. Uh, but I can tell you that a lot of causes and conditions led to me sort of embarking on this journey. And uh, the primary influence was, I suppose, my cultural experience as an Iranian, born in Iran. I was born during the Iran-Iraq War. So I have memories as a child um, of running into bunkers, uh, hiding from missiles or airstrikes from Saddam Hussein that were falling on Tehran. And this was after uh, after the Islamic Revolution, so the country was very unstable, and there was, you know, it was it was a very tense place to be, and people were unhappy, and uh, there was a sort of an air of fear, you know, like a mm-hmm. like an atmosphere of fear that was ex- uh, that was experienced there. And I think even as a child, I I did I did feel it, I did I did sense it, and so that was where I was born. Um, though I was very privileged uh, to then, due to my father's job as an international lawyer, to be uh, taken to Germany and transplanted into Hamburg, a beautiful city, uh, very, very much in contrast to the Tehran that I was experiencing, and um, basically uh, you know, received a very sort of privileged upbringing in Germany, in Hamburg, Though we did go back to Iran regularly, and my father was a very eclectic man, very interesting and very progressive for where he was from and for for the time that he lived in as an Iranian. And he was very much interested in the Eastern contemplative philosophy. So Mm -hmm. he raised me and my brother um, sort of indirectly influencing us um, with Buddhist symbolism, Buddhist language, uh, Buddhist philosophy, and always to challenge sort of preconceived ideas, getting us to challenge and to question reality and ourselves and our minds and sort of the cultural, the cultural dogmas that were surrounding us. And, and was, um, was that, his original religion Islam? Was he Muslim? I, yeah, I mean, we're all Muslim, born, born in, as an Iranian, um, you know, unless you're a Jew or you're you know, you have another religion. Most most Iranians are Muslim, so that was his that was his religion that he was born into. Yet he pretty much renounced it, and he's passed away now. So it's safe for me to say that. Uh-huh. Yeah. So that influence or that, those seeds uh, were planted in my mind um, to think outside the box. And also, you know, we grew up. My my brother and I have photos of us as babies in pampers, like playing with Buddha statues in our home in Tehran. You know, so it was around us. And uh, I was about I was about 20 when my, my, my father had a brain stroke and then eventually passed away when I was 21. And that's when I was uh. living in London. So that really led to me uh, taking it seriously, taking this path of self-inquiry and deeper, uh, sort of a deeper investigation into the nature of my own purpose and my own mind and then outward reality. So I really took it to heart, and that was an impetus for me then to go to India. And I was 22 when I left for India, and I really immersed in the Vedic and the yogic traditions and really Mm -hmm. studied and received teacher training certificates in yoga and meditation. And that's where really my journey, sort of the more esoteric or the more sort of spiritual journey for me began. Mm Mm-hmm. 
want me to continue from there? <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating. Yes, sure. <laughs> you, but you were, you were born into a Muslim family. Your father yes. was very open to contemplative ideas and the contemplative yes. tradition from the East. So you were playing with Buddhist statues as a baby. And then when you're a very yes. young adult, you go to India and study the Vedic traditions. Yes, exactly. Yes. This is wonderfully broad-minded and inclusive. Yeah, to be honest with you, you know, going back to your original question, what was that stir in in my in my being? What led to that? And it was a dissatisfaction, to be honest with you, with a with the way things were presented to me. And um, to be by honest with you, by your father, by other people, by other people, by society, by the education system in which I was, I I never really felt uh, understood uh, and really never felt like I fit in and you know partly culturally because I was Persian and I was you know as I said transplanted into a German environment back in the 90s so it wasn't exactly like the Germany that exists today Um, Uh I don't think it was because of those because of those external circumstances I think it was more an internal uh, sense of internal um, disconnect that I was experiencing you know I can't really explain it (laughs) I can't well, what explain it. That, the, no. What in that disconnect, though, led you and inspired you to go on this path that's truly uplifting, and it's about, you know, your self, your your life's work seems to be a lot about mindfulness, self actualization, yes. and openness. So, what stirred mm-hmm. you into that direction? To be honest with you, there's no other way to explain it other than to say it was a feeling. It was a feeling, and to be again. To reiterate, that feeling is like the the red thread. I don't even know if that that's a way of uh, describing describing something, but it's like uh-huh. that that thread that weaves through my whole life up until this moment. There is something that I cannot point to. I cannot empirically prove its existence, but I know it's there and it's underlying all the continuum of my life experience to this point. And that feeling was there. You know, it was a knowing. It was a feeling. And maybe some people refer to it as intuition. Other people refer to it. I mean, Joseph Campbell would call it the bliss, right? That, right, that, right, yeah. That yeah. bliss that the hero then sets out to seek. Mm-hmm. Um, so that really was it. It was a feeling of going, of needing to go deeper and to go down the rabbit hole. And it was, I was willing to abandon all kinds of comfort. And I, I grew up in a really sort of stable family. And, um, you know, I had everything I needed at my disposal. And I pretty much threw it all aboard and went to India and basically like backpacked and I really shed that identity, uh, whether it was being a Persian German, whether it was the daughter of an international lawyer and a copyright lawyer, it was all of the the gender, you know, being an Iranian female, uh, there's Mm -hmm. a lot of sort of gender ideals that are imprinted on you from a very early age. I just wanted to shed all of it and to understand what is really underneath these layers that accumulate over time and create a person. <laughs> because that person I didn't identify with, and I wanted to know what is beneath the person's clothes, clothing or, mm-hmm. you know, clothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was it hard to have that. that? Sorry? To shed all those layers of the preconceived notions that were imprinted on you, was it difficult to shed them? To be honest, it was the most joyful process imaginable. It was almost like, you know, when you're like totally dehydrated and all of a sudden someone hands you a really nice, fresh glass of water and you drink it and you're like, ah, 
this is my default, this is my home, it was a homecoming. It was a sense of homecoming, and that's really a theme uh, in my life up until now. That was my first level of homecoming, was when I went to India, and, you know, a lot of it was also re- due to rejecting um, my school my in which I lived. So I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. it, was a, it was an act of rebellion partly. I was young. I was impulsive. I was, I was a really, really rebellious girl. I, it's a miracle I'm alive, <laughs> to be honest with you. And I was very angry, to be honest with you. I was very, very angry. At your yeah. mother, at your society, at, at your... everyone, at society, at the way the woman is represented in the culture and society that I was raised. So I, I, you know, my mother and father were very progressive, very, very secular. Even the Eastern sort of influences were not, they weren't forced upon us. They were just, there was a, you know, it was around us. Let's put it that way. He, my father never imposed on us any religious view, nor did my mom. So I grew up with a very gorgeous, very Western mother. Yet I, something about, something made me really furious. And I, I later on, I understood what, what really it was, and it had what? nothing to do. What was it? <laughs> what was it? It was um, not not uh, not sort of uh, how can I say it? Not being who I was. It was an anger that was essentially towards myself, my own ignorance. And then, it, you know, the easiest thing to do is to divert it outwards to find someone else to blame. I'm not saying there was no one outside to blame. I did experience my fair share of developmental trauma and moving from this country to that country and, you know, whatever experiences that we all have as children and as adolescents. I mean, it's it's a struggle from the moment we're born, <laughs> to be honest mm-hmm. with you. Yeah. Um, so I did have my fair share of that, but it was an anger at myself and an anger directed at my own misknowing and well, you know, it led me to do a lot of, or to go deeper, and a dissatisfaction with the way that I perceived myself and I perceived the world, and that anger was fuel. To be honest with you, it fueled the past. And if we take away the label of anger, or the co- concept of anger, which we associate with something negative and destructive, if we take all of that away, what lies? What remains? What remains? But uh, sort of. A, I can't find another word but except energy and energy in the body that we experientially get to know. Mm-hmm. The heat. Was there a moment when you said, when you shifted from an outer directed, diverted anger to realizing it was inside? Was there a moment when you said, oh, this anger, this is my anger. It isn't about other people. Yes, but it took many years. I wish it took, it, it didn't, it wouldn't have taken that long, but it took many years. To be honest with you, I just had, probably not long ago, within the last couple of years, I realized that this anger I felt was really towards myself, towards my own obscured mind. And as a result of this obscuration or this mental obscuration, my actions were misinformed. I would make decisions, I would act in accordance with this obscuration that would lead to my own suffering. Do you understand? So it was Mm -hmm. just within the last few years where I understood oh my goodness, all of this this anger and frustration that I was carrying in my body and my mind were really towards myself. And that's when I started to, to go really deep into, that's really when I came across Buddhism and began practicing Buddhism officially. And was there a specific incident or was it just, did it unfold over the course of a period of time? 
Exactly. It unfolded over a a course of uh, time and through practice, really through rigorous practice and critical inquiry and self-exploration or self-investigation. So the other thing about my path, which I personally find I'm kind of proud of it, is that from when I was about 20, I started to document my process. So I began buying these moleskin journals and starting uh-huh. to, like a therapist or psychotherapist or analyst, I started to really sort of document my subjective experience and my thoughts, my emotions, my responses to my environment, my relationships, my con- the concepts by which I lived, um, all of it, my fears, my hopes, my dreams. Um, and I basically now, if, if I were to put all the journals into into like a room, it would be, I mean, depends on the size of the room, but it would fill up a, a pretty nice Manhattan-sized apartment room. You know what wow. I'm saying? Like there are uh-huh. so many books that document my personal pr- path and process. And that's really what led me to want to do the same for other people. Because that led to insights and realizations about my own habitual behavior and my deep-seated, ingrained beliefs about who I am and what the world is in relation to me. And when you talk about your practice, do you, what do, exactly do you mean? A practice of meditation? A practice of self-inquiry? Yeah, so then just so I t- uh, tell you how it, it gradually evolved. So after India, I went back to London, did a master in social anthropology because I was really interested in human behavior. Prior to that, I did my, mas- uh, my bachelor in marketing advertising in basically three years, except uh-huh. for like the final, you know, final few months, I decided to show up and write like critiques of the advertising agency or marketing agency. And, and it was a miracle that I didn't get, um, what do you say, like I didn't uh, fail the whole course. But um, I just managed to pass. But I was interested in consumer behavior and what motivates people to buy. I was interested in, I guess, the field that's now called, like, behavioral economics. Um, And so, anyway, that then evolved into my interest in social anthropology and how human beings organize themselves in society and why they act in in the ways that they act and what the rituals are um, that they sort of engage in and create to make sense of their experience. And I was really interested in phenomenology in the experiential sort of experiential understanding of the oneself and the world through the vehicle of the body. Mm-hmm. And then um, and throughout all this period, I was practicing yoga and I was, you know, due to my training in the Vedic tradition, which is Hindu, I was still, you know, I was, you know, practicing, uh, like prostrating to a myriad of Hindu deities and singing chants and mantras and it, it was all very beautiful. And my nature, my predisposition is to be devotional. I'm an Iranian. I'm passionate. You put on a Persian classical song and I'll just start, like, you know, weeping and just dramatic people. So, wow. Um, yeah. Uh, so that was my predisposition already. And I realized, okay, there's something that I'm missing. It's like the level, like a rationality. There was a, a sort of a logic, uh, the ability to debate, to be on par with science. Um, to be able to to hold conversations with people that are non-believers, and I would mm-hmm. lose any time I would engage in debate. Maybe it was due to my own mis- like misknowing about the Hindu or the Vedic traditions. Maybe there's other much more skilled people out there who can explain it better. But for me, it wasn't really working. And that's when I moved to New York, and that's a whole other crazy story. Um, and eventually came across the Buddhist path, and particularly the Tibetan Buddhist path. 
And uh, then it started to make sense. Then the rational part of me, the part of me that really loves science, thrives on science, uh, began to become integrated. And then my practice started to evolve from that. So then what is my practice? My practice is as a Tibetan Buddhist practitioner, you know, it is definitely mindfulness. And it Mm -hmm. is also other types of insight meditations that go deeper into inquiring about the nature of self, for example, meditating Mm -hmm. on what is the self and how do we find the self and doing like almost like analytical inquiry layer by layer, unpeeling our concepts and our ideas and and challenging our our concepts. So every time my mind says, okay, well, the self is, is, is somewhere inside me and then going deeper into asking, okay, where is it in my torso? Is it in my head? Is it in my brain? And mm-hmm. that is a simple way of explaining more sort of analytical meditation or, or even around the topic of reality. What is reality? Uh, what is, what is the absolute? What is impermanence? What is death? So these kind of more sort of analytical meditations would be a part of my practice, but also, you know, the devotional is still an inherent part of my practice. I love to immerse myself in the devotional aspect of Buddhism, which is a set of prayers and visualizations and, you know, like praising the teachers. And mm-hmm. My teacher, as is the teacher of most Buddhists, is His Holiness the Dalai Lama, the 14th Dalai Lama. And for me, that, you know, meditating on him or recalling him just opens my heart. And I don't know uh-huh. what better way to exist than to be open-hearted. <laughs> mm-hmm. What know? about Sufi dancing? How did that come to be part of your life and your practice? And is that do you consider that devotional? Yeah, exactly. I love how you went from being open-hearted to Sufi dancing because that's really what Sufism is. It's the path of love. I'm not a Sufi, uh, though I do very much. I mean, I'm like tango dancing with Sufism in a way. I'm like cheek to cheek with Sufism, but I'm not, I don't consider myself a practitioner per se. Um, I grew up with, as a Persian or an Iranian, you grow up with the poetry of Hafez and Rumi. Rumi, right. Exactly. So then that's cult, it's a part of your cultural ethos that you experience. And as a result, you know, culture permeates one's being. It's not just external two-dimensional reality. It's who we are. It's in our DNA over time. Um, so that went into my body. There's no other way to describe it, but like Sufism and the culture, meaning the music and the poetry, went into my body. And pretty much when I was in London, um, around the time my father got sick with a brain stroke, I started to just dance in my room. And it just came out of me. To be honest with you, like I would just sit, and then all of a sudden I would feel the urge to have to dance. So I started to put, listen to more and more devotional Sufi music, and then my body just knew what to do, and it started to whirl. Wow. So that's, yeah, that's how I, I started to do it. And then I would just whirl myself into this state of, like, total joyous ecstasy, and then I would fall over on the floor and just laugh. And So is that part cry. of your red thread? Huh? Sorry? Is Sufi dancing part of your red thread? It is definitely a part of my red thread. That's beautifully said. Yes, it is. Every now and then, when I start to dance again and I do that devotional Sufi dance, it's like I'm reintegrating myself and my life. Like, imagine your life is a puzzle and the pieces get scattered from time to time and disconnected. For me, mm-hmm. the dancing reconnects all of the, the sort of separated pieces of the puzzle, puts them together in a coherent sort of chaotic system. That's beautiful. Yeah. So when you yeah. dance, you're reintegrating, yes, re-cohering. Exactly. 
Yes, exactly. Yes, that's exactly how I would describe it. And it's almost, you know, like one of my favorite quotes is by uh, Pina Bausch, a German, obviously, you know, her German choreographer and dancer and legend and philosopher. She said in German, Tanz verloren, which means dance, dance, otherwise we are lost. Uh-huh. So that really just like reverberates in my system. It like shakes me up. And when, I, when I'm like, why am I so confused? Why am I in my head? Why am I regurgitating these thoughts? And I'm stuck between decisions and I don't know what to do anymore and overwhelmed by concepts. I, I check in with myself. Have I been dancing? <laughs> and then I, most, most of the time I see the pattern. I'm like, no, I haven't. I have completely neglected the very thing that as you identified allows me to reintegrate and reorganize myself so then i just have to go back to that and that's what practice is so it doesn't have to be mindfulness doesn't have to be prayer it could be gardening for example uh-huh you could be a contemplative gardener <laughs> you and know, how do or, you how, how do you experience mindfulness and how do you teach mindfulness and i ask this because you know as you know you were recommended to me by a mutual friend who said tracy you have to have anahita on your show uh, she teaches <laughs> mindfulness so beautifully like no one oh. else wow well that's such an honor cuz there's some pretty incredible mindfulness teachers out there um who are much more eloquent and sophisticated in their explanations of mindfulness but for me it's like being able to speak the language of attention it's like if attention is the currency with which we pay, our most valuable resource that we have, we are in possession of, then mindfulness is just a skillful application of this currency uh, of attention that we can apply to inner processes and to outer processes. So the outer experience and the inner experience just become more apparent. We become more aware. And then, of course, there's deeper layers of awareness. You know, we can have just pure sensory awareness where we are uh, sort of attuning or or becoming more aware of our sen- sensory sort of the sensory data that we're receiving, mm-hmm. um, uh-huh. and then the thoughts. Then we can go deeper and deeper into actually examining like the feeling tone. What is the that filter through which we are having our subjective experience? Sometimes we feel there's just the the pleasant filter when we just feel good. You know those mornings you wake up and you just feel good and you don't know why. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's other times you just feel. Un- there's an unpleasant feeling in you, and you, there's not necessarily not even a trigger. Nothing really happened, but there's that like nagging, dissatisfied sense of discomfort, and mm-hmm. you know that feeling that would be described as a feeling tone. Sometimes it's neutral. There's not neither one of the two sort of opposites. Um, and then there's there's mental formations. There's a subjective awareness, or being able to pay attention to our to our to our emotions, to the concepts that we. Uh, Sort of that are created almost like the way clouds are formed in the sky, and then they move again and they dissolve again or they pass through. Um, the same way we can start to pay attention, and, and you must have heard this this way of describing mindfulness meditation. But it's like it just makes perfect sense to use the analogy of the, the clouds in the sky. And mm-hmm. if we pay attention to the clouds, we see they're first of all impermanent; they're changing in real time, in front of our eyes. But they appear like they're fixed out there. They appear like they're not going to go anywhere. But they always do. That is just the nature of the cloud. And underneath or around the cloud is the blue sky. And that is the nature of the mind. It's almost like clear, spacious, uh, light-filled most of the time. And, and it holds 
it holds, it's a container for the thoughts. It's a container for the fluctuating emotions that arise and subside. What is, let me ask you, what is your deepest experience of the nature of the mind? What is your own personal deepest experience of the nature of the mind? That's a pretty profound question. The deepest experience of the nature of mind that I have had? Yes. Yeah. Well, um, if I were to conceptualize it, it would translate into a state of interconnectedness with all things. So what's really beautiful about Buddhism is that it's believed the mind is where the heart is. So if if you just put your hand on the middle of your chest, where we would otherwise say that's the heart or the heart center, the mind or the seat of consciousness is said to be there. So it's almost like from that place, from the heart experience or a view from the heart of all things, and my, myself included in this, um, being interconnected, being essentially a whole, one mm-hmm. whole system that is interconnected and interdependent, like dependent upon other things. And that is such a humbling experience to have in which that really inflated sense of self and the consequential myopic worldview that arises from that sense of fixed, hardened, calcified self starts to subside. And instead of it comes this more fluid, more expanded subjective awareness of oneself as part of a whole. And it's like, then it's like this weight of the self gets removed from you. And it's just like, ah, yes. It's so nice to be free from oneself. That's you the know? theme in what you've been talking about with me, this being released from that codified sense of self. Exactly. That is really it. And if I were to like get to the root of it, it's like our suffering comes from this notion of self, from this concept of self that we so just so like desperately are seeking to reinforce and reify and create for and protect and you know, and then it leads us to this very kind of basic prim- primal behavior of seeking pleasure and avoiding suffering, avoiding pain. And it's like mm-hmm. we're just the pendulum swinging between the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. And that's such a limited and uncreative way of living. And that really makes us no different from like a freaking reptile, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or like a monkey. And we're so much more evolved, and neuroscientists will tell us that we have this beautiful prefrontal area of the brain which is uh, capable of conceptualizing and deciding and imagining. And, um, you know, it's just so much more sophisticated than those very primal, very sort of like reptilian um, modes of behavior. And it's capable of love. Most importantly, mm-hmm. like forget about decision making. It's capable of love. It's capable of empathy. It it wants to collaborate. It wants to create. And when, and that's what really the pro social the notion of pro social emotions like that's where, that's where it happens. Where we can actually, in my humble opinion, and I and I do like to say, I'm echoing His Holiness Dalai Lama's words, that's where, that's where the future. That's what the future depends on, on our ability to draw on our capacity for empathy and for love and for the view of us, for a correct view of of the way things are, in which things are dependent upon each other, in which we are actually very vulnerable and very fragile. Well, is there, so let me ask you to, if you can specific this way, are there, is there an example or a moment in your own life, a concrete example where you caught yourself um, being pro-social in a way that 
led you out of yourself? Was there something specific and maybe you did intend it or maybe you didn't intend it and you were able then to catch yourself in the moment saying, oh, yes, this is me being more than I am, which is actually what I truly am? Mm. Yeah, um, I'm just scanning through the memory centers or the memory folders of my brain. Um, you know, for example, the close, the one thing that comes to my mind is when I was in Nepal uh, a couple of years ago volunteering for the 108 Lives Project, which is a beautiful um, nonprofit started by my first Buddhist teacher, Hector Marcel. And we were basically assigned to work with orphan with orphanages and with um, beggar communities, so like a whole set, of, like a tent village of Indian um, beggars, to be honest with you, that came to Kathmandu because they had higher chances of making money on the streets of Kathmandu than in, elsewhere in India. And we were basically spending day and night with these people. And I was dancing with the children in the orphanages in the morning, and then I would go to the tent village and, and have dinner and dance with the children in the, the settlement there. And it was, I, I developed a momentum over the course of weeks in which I completely lost the sense of self. Like my, my, the notion of Anahita in space and time started to become less and less solid. And instead it was replaced by a sort of more of a process. So I experienced myself more as a continuum, a process that was Mm -hmm. almost like blending into uh, its environment, blending in with the people that that I was serving or that it, it was serving and that reminds me of Gandhi's quote, I think the best way to find yourself is by losing yourself in the service of others. That wow. really then I internalized that. I'm like, I have completely lost the sense of self that I, I came here with and my preconceived rigid ideas of who I am and how I will engage with the Tibet, uh, Nepali people. And instead it was replaced by this dynamic interpersonal process that was always changing and was so much more spacious and was so much more available to real-time experience, which is really mindfulness mm-hmm. and what mindfulness is supposed to serve. Uh, and guess what? I was so happy. I could have just, I mean, I, I felt like I had wings and I could just fly. Wow. <laughs> it, was like, it was one of the most joyful times of my life um, where my own needs didn't matter. And my, my own, like, dragging myself through the streets of New York trying to make it story didn't didn't matter anymore it was how can i be my best in service of of these people that i'm here for how can i be more joyful how can i be more passionate how can i be kinder and more generous for others and that gave me so much joy and as a result and is it is that sense of joy and that sense of losing the rigidity of yourself and entering into a relationship with yourself as a process a dynamic process unfolding is that what brought you to found Neural Beings Coaching? Yes. Uh, yes, actually it, it was. And, it, and Neural Beings is sort of, if I were to take that very chaotic and dynamic experience and organize it a little bit more, make it sort of, make it replicable, because, you know, that's we have to also function in a society. You know, I'm not dancing around orphanages and uh, villages in, in Kathmandu right now. I'm working... Uh, like a normal human person in New York. So it has to have some kind of like, there has to be some systematic approach to it. So I'm trying to, that was my intention. Yes, I said to myself, I'm going to replicate this experience here in New York and, and treat my clients as the source of my, um, my joy. 
they are they are serving them is the is will yield the result that I'm seeking. And I, of course, like any other sentient being, I'm seeking happiness. I'm seeking joy. I'm seeking self actualization and liberation from suffering. So that became my way of continu- continuing the practice. Yeah. And what are some of the principles in neural beings? And um, what what is part of your coaching? What is the philosophy behind your coaching? Yeah, so the the philosophy was really an accumulation of my own insights and the practices that I developed over time, including the writing, which is like just another form of self-inquiry. It was definitely my relationship to my body and to movement and to maintaining a sense of dynamism in the body. I mean, all things are made of energy. I'm not talking from a sort of esoteric new, new age point of view. We know from physics that there's energy and energy and allows things to be. So energy and information um, are circulating in our system all the time. Can we access that? And in fact, can we activate that? You know, from the Eastern sort of anatomical point of view, there's a, there's a whole complex subtle system in the body. We're not just this material dense form. We're also, we also have a very intricate system of channels um, that, for example, the Chinese system or the Tibetan system, the Indian system will explain to us in depth. So how do we access that? How do we actually become sensitive to the energies that are moving in our bodies as we engage in communication with each other? So that I integrated into my coaching process, and that led to the whole idea of embodiment, which is not new. It's not I didn't invent it, obviously. And that's where George Lakoff, who's a cognitive linguist, was really inspiring to me because he coined the term, or he actually just quote, he said a, he had a quote saying, "We are neural beings, and the mind is inherently embodied." And then he expands into like metaphors being embodied, and that I won't go into that. But the the notion of um, embodied cognition and also the embodied nervous system—we're not just brains. The brain isn't just in the head. The brain runs all the way through the nervous system to the in, covering the entire body. So how can we be? How can we reactivate this body-mind system? That's again going back to yoga philosophy too—the mm-hmm. unification of the mind and body through practices that um, are sort of alchemical in a way, you know? <laughs> and and that mind-body integration, in my opinion, is an emergent property. So it's an emergent property of various kind of different systems working together in a way that leads to this more subtle self, this more subtle system. So how would you coach someone if they came to you? Like what do you say mm-hmm. in a session with someone? I say, what do you want? <laughs> you know, uh, really, it's just like, what is it that you want? And uh, what is your intention? What is your intention for coming here? And, you know, I usually tell them we're all, I tell them what the Buddha said. I say, you know, we all want to, we all want happiness and none of us want to suffer. So we're all in the same boat. I'm no superior. I suffer. I still have my episodes. I'm also confused from time to time, but it takes practice. So I, t- I, tell, I ask them, are you willing to commit to a practice? And essentially I ask them, are you willing to get married to yourself? Because this is going to be you, you doing you. And it's a scary road. And as we know from Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey, there's going to mm-hmm. be obstacles. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it's going to get really terrifying. Are you ready to go deep? And are you ready to, you know, like my yoga, yoga teacher says, are you willing to die? Are you ready to die? And some people actually, I lose clients like that at the first consultation. They're like, "Oh, no thanks. I'm gonna just kind of, I'm gonna go take a couple of yoga classes or go see a therapist." Uh, you know, it depends. Mm-hmm. 
Some people don't want to take that journey. It, there's a lot of pain in it. You know? And when people come to you and say, when you say to them, what do you, what do you want? They're usually talking about, you know, love and relationships or money or career advancement or health, right? Well, actually, that's it's good that you say that. Mostly with me, no, it's interesting. They don't have those. They don't come to me with those things. I think that's really sort of the work of a more of a life coach. For With me, they come when they have existential meltdown. When they're like, uh, I don't know who I am anymore, and my perception of reality is changing, and I have no ground under my feet, and I want to know who I am and what is true. That's usually the kind of person that comes to work with me. I, I, to be honest with you, I'm like, I can't care less right now on as a beginning. I don't care about your relationships. I don't care about your money issues. I care about what is deep inside of you that's changing or that's yearning to change. And then when we tweak that, or as my teacher, Dr. Miles Neal, would say, when we, when we re-access the black box and we start to reset the program, then we can start to work our way into the outer sort of things. And, in fact, the outer things start to change themselves. The relationship starts to either fall apart or to, you know, come together in a more coherent way. Uh, relationships to others become more authentic. Uh, relationship to one's body, to one's habit. Everything starts to change as a consequence of the program in the black box starting to be changed. And so that's the what black I'm box, in. The black box is that thing inside us which you've also identified as the red thread? Hmm, that's an interesting... That's actually maybe true. I have to think about that. Maybe you led me to a little insight here. Is the black box the red thread? I think the red thread goes through the black box. It goes to the heart of the black box. And it arises from the black box as a formal, as a sense of knowing. Uh-huh. You know, I guess the, the red thread, now that I'm thinking about it, it's like that sense of purpose. You know, mm-hmm. that we all, I, I'm, I would bet, I guarantee you know what you are here to do in this world, deep inside you know. And you may know it also on a surface level because you've committed to it. But you have a mm-hmm. sense of who you are and what you're meant to do in the world. And if and if there are people who don't know, then it's my job to lead them to that place of knowing, you know? <laughs> so that's the red thread. And the black box, I guess, from a psychology point of view, it could be described more as our, like, set of beliefs, our, like, our worldview, in a way. Mm-hmm. The, lens, the lens through which we perceive ourselves and through which we perceive reality. That would be more the black box, the way we've been programmed. And most of that is conditioning. Most of that is, I mean, for as a Buddhist, I would say also, you know, I believe in past lives and future lives. So it's karma. It's what it's cause and effect that we're carrying <laughs> uh-huh. know, through time. So if someone comes to you, how do you help them get into their black box and see their own conditioning? Well, that's exactly where mindfulness comes in so handy. I mean, we have to start going in. It's a journey inward. So we have to first start to disengage that grasping at an external reality. So we have to, like, my job is to take the hand that's, like, what do you say when it's, like, holding onto something really firm as if otherwise it's going to die? There's a word for it. Like, you're um, gripping. Gripping? I'm mm-hmm. not sure what word is. So, you know, that's grasping, where I come in. Grasping. I have a sense of grasping. And I gently mm-hmm. stroke the hand, and I'm reassure the person that everything's gonna be okay. Nothing's gonna fall apart if we just start to switch the phone off, 
and take a deep breath and settle into the body and listen to the sounds and smell the scents in the air and layer after layer, repetitively, day after day, little by little, start to go deeper into into the body and then into the you know into the mind, essentially into the more subtle layers of, of self. That's well, how, how we gradually go to the black box. And how do you see your work evolving, like, over the next five years, the next ten years? And what about the entrepreneurial aspect of it? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So I'm beginning to really do a lot of research on the body. And um, I actually discovered Gibney Dance School, which is just like heaven on earth for me right now. Um, so I'm doing a lot of movement research and seeing, uh, looking at ways to incorporate sort of somatic therapies into my coaching process because you know, yes, we can have really deep conversations and we can go deep in meditation with clients, but I want to see my clients move their bodies and I want to see my clients dance. To be very honest with you, my wish is to take my clients to a, to a state of mind which is like a state of dance. You know, when you dance and it's uncontrived and you completely lose yourself, mm-hmm. I want to give my clients that experience. And whether it's through movement, whether it's through meditation, um, but it's through the body. So the body is becoming more and more sort of my focus right now. And, um, yeah, and where do I see myself in 10 years? Well, I have a project right now. Um, I'm actually in the in the process of launching an experiential retreat hotel, to be honest with you. Wow. And that's a project, yes, that um, – I'm doing with a, a dear friend of mine and a business partner, as well as my first Buddhist teacher, who was a former monk, and um, another very, very um, cherished friend and business partner. So the four of us are launching an experiential retreat hotel called Kin, or a company called Kin Travel. And it, this whole company, the whole brand is, is inspired and informed by the, the philosophical view of interdependence. And... And therefore, it's it's an organization or a hotel that aims to give back to uh, the society and the culture in which it's positioned. So it's sort of like a social impact hotel, and it's a sustainable hotel. And mm-hmm. in the hotel, there will be um, mind-body practices or processes that are integrated for the for the guests to have experiences while they're there. So it, it has that retreat experience. And I'm designing the process for that together with the former monk, Punsak. And um, so that's going to most probably happen in Haiti. We're currently talking about, or, you know, securing the land. Um, mm-hmm. So look out for kin. That's exciting. <laughs> kin travel. So that's sort of my coaching process in a three-dimensional, experiential way within a retreat hotel environment. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's exciting. What gave you the idea for that? Well, to be honest with you, it was my friend Brian Jones, who's the initial founder of the the hotel um, idea, and he met me at a workshop that I was leading at the Feast Conference, a neuroscience of mindfulness workshop, and he basically like scooped me up and said, "We have to talk, and I want you to sort of, I want your worldview and and your insights to inform my brand and this concept. So be a part of this project." And I love hotels. Um, when I was doing the country reports work um, back in, you know, in 2007, 2008, when I lived all over mm-hmm. the world, that time I realized that a part of me thrives in that environment. I don't exactly know why. Maybe it's the fact that we all have to sort of share a, a space and we're all kind of like dependent on each other in some very interesting way. 
um, which actually led me to coaching hotels and working with teams at hotels. And um, so I've led workshops at Soho House and at the Lowell Hotel, and I'm, you know, talking with the Four Seasons in New York. And so I'm very passionate about hospitality. And That's cool. How can Yeah, because hospitality, it, it really, it's about that very intimate connection between human beings. And that's really what I'm passionate about. That's that's How do we amazing. Facilitate, and facilitate enriching have, meaningful experiences. Sorry. Yeah. That's okay. Uh what do you have upcoming and um can you tell us a little bit more about your website and how people can find you? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm very interested in, in working with and I'm in the process of basically confirming some workshops with some financial institutions because um I would love to just ease, bring some ease into their processes. I, I would love to work with individuals and teams that otherwise are pushing through night and day and are exhausted and are depleted. And I, if I can be a source of inspiration, a source of ease for these kind of people in those kind of environments that, in my humble opinion, are running um, running in very old-fashioned ways, very hierarchical, very devoid of, of the hum- humanity and the wisdom that we all have inside of us. So if I can help on that level, I would love to. So I'm um, going to be doing more work with organizations. Mm-hmm. And um, what else? Speaking engagements. You know, I'm always out and about leading workshops, talking about – I'm also uh, talking about the neuroscience of mindfulness, but I'm also very interested in quantum mechanics uh, because, actually, I asked, uh, the Dalai Lama question once in New York at the Beacon Theater, and I, I asked them, how can I teach basic Buddhist ideas to someone mm-hmm. who's never heard them before? And then he broke out into laughter, as he does, and then he said, teach quantum physics. Inspire people through quantum physics and explain wow. reality through the lens of quantum physics. I'm like, oh my God, how am I going to do that now? So ever since then, which was pretty much uh, two years ago, I've been trying to get my, you know, thick head into the field of quantum mechanics and understand the absurd and um, sort of illogical or irrational behavior of, of small particles and the, mm-hmm. uh, the fabric of the universe. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I, my goal is to deepen my understanding of quantum physics and be able to incorporate that into my into my workshops. That so is if cool. You, if you have any ideas, please send them my way, how I can become more intelligent in regards to that. I think your intelligence is just fine, Anahita. I'm yeah. not worried about you on that level at all. Okay, thank you very much. Yeah. And uh, well, really, it's about my, to be honest, I would love to work internationally. I would love to just, you know, spread my wings and be all over the world at the same time. <laughs> like like already been all over the world. I know, but I'm only 32 and I want more. <laughs> That's exciting. Where would you like to be that you haven't been yet? Such a good question. Um, I would love to go to where would I love to go? Um, Asia. I mean, I'm always interested in in the Asian uh, and East Asia. I've been to East Asia before. I, I guess some parts of Africa I haven't. I would love to go to Iceland. Um, and uh, where else? Tibet. I'm actually I'm not so sure if I'd want to go to Tibet under the Chinese rule, but um, Mongolia, Bhutan, those countries, just to name a few. Yeah. That sounds so. wonderful. So, and your website is neuralbeings.com? 
Exactly. Neural beings, which you would spell N-E-U-R-A-L, beings like human beings. Mm-hmm. dot com and um if anyone is interested in contacting me there is a a form so you can go under contact and just send me a little note and I would be so happy to get in touch with anyone that's interested in finding out more or is interested in my work or just wants to know uh, has any questions that I can either answer or I can refer them to other people and I have a abundant sort of resource of of very sort of intelligent and wise human beings that are all inspiring my work. So I always want to, I like to say and reiterate that all the knowledge and wisdom I have, or if there's any insight inside of me, it's because of the people that are teaching and that are helping me understand these ideas and these experiences. Well, that was That's interesting. We only have a couple minutes left, so as my last question, I was going to ask you, who inspires you and who are your models? Yeah, I love that question. So to be honest with you, it's Two, two people are the most inspiring to me, and this is kind of very interesting. Uh, one is, um, of course, the Dalai Lama, so he would be my number one. And the second is Patti Smith, to be honest. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, yeah, Patti Smith, the rock and roll singer. So those are my two heroes, and I can name a lot more, but really something about them. And the best moment, one of the best moments in my life was just recently when they both showed up on stage at Glastonbury Festival. It was almost wow. like my eyeballs just fell out of their socket. It was <laughs> such a blissful sight to see them holding hands and singing with like hundreds, of, I don't know how many people, but thousands of people in the audience singing happy birthday to the Dalai Lama with Patti Smith holding his hand. And I had the blessing of meeting them both personally and receiving sort of almost like instructions from them both. So Patti Smith told me to dance and to continue shedding skin in order to be reborn. And the Dalai Lama told me to inspire people through science and quantum physics So and, and to understand the nature of reality, basically. So I got These my homework. Wonderful goals. Yeah, so that's my goal, exactly. And if I can achieve that goal, then I'll be of higher service to others. Maybe I can help others achieve that. And to end it on the note, I really, it's my purpose is to take, to, to provide a sense of homecoming for people. So in my coaching process, if I can provide that sense of rest and relief uh, in, in the process, in my presence, then my goal has been fulfilled because we're all exiled in some way. We're all sort of, uh, we've, we've exiled ourselves. And if, if, uh-huh. if I can be of service to leading people home, and home, again, there's different layers of home, but that home that's deep inside in the mind. Well, thank you. I mean, thank you. Thank you so yeah. much for being on. It was That's wonderful. My pleasure. And I hope you'll be on again soon. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks. Thank okay. you. So, listeners, that was amazing. That was Anahita Moghadam, and you can find more about her at neuralbeings.com. And I want to encourage you to come back next week. Master artist Virgil Elliott will be talking about art. So thanks for tuning in. See you next week. This has been Tracy L. Slatten on the Independent Artists and Thinkers Network. Thanks for joining us. Come back next week.